Um, you know, Christians have always had a love-hate relationship with the world. And on, on the one hand, what's probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible? What do you think it is? Yeah, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, right? But then you get to other passages of Scripture, like one that we're going to look at today in 1 John. Same guy, you know, the same guy that records Jesus saying, For God so loved the world. He says... To not love the world or anything in the world. So which is it? Love or hate? I mean, do, do, do we forsake, do we give up all the worldly pleasures? Or do we love the world? Which, which is it? You ever have an uneasy feeling or a fear that you're missing out on something? Um, especially something that, that maybe somebody else is doing and you, you're not experiencing that. You ever get that fear? Um, if if you have that anxiety or that fear that you're missing out on something, don't be alarmed because uh, there's actually a term for that. It's called FOMO. It's the fear of missing out. Uh, it was first identified as a term by marketers in the mid-90s, and it referred to, some, to the sometimes energizing but also sometimes terrifying anxiety that you're missing out on something absolutely terrific. It could be a party. It could be a new movie. It could be a, a special relationship, you know, a spouse, a child, a, a friend, a grandchild. Maybe just a dinner that you really wanted to, to, to participate in. But, but there's this fear that we're missing out on something. And it's not a new problem at all. It's got a, you know, the term is relatively new. But, but it's an age-old problem that's been accelerated by, by real-time digital updates and by one of these, by the smartphone. You know, social media experts uh, like Mark Smith, they, they explain it this way. They said, those who used to dine behind the thick stone walls and had caviar, they now do so, only they tweet about it. And it can be seen by those who are sitting down to dinner at Chipotle's. In the New York Times, Jenna Wortham wrote about a friend who works in advertising who told her friend that she felt great about her life until she opened up Facebook. And when she looked at, at her Facebook uh, news feed, she said, I'm thinking, I'm 28, and I've got three roommates. And oh, all of my friends, it looks like they have these precious babies and a mortgage. And then, I just want to die. That was her words. She claims that social media updates make our simple domestic pleasures pale in comparison with all the fun things that we could be or should be doing. And I think that's where a lot of Christians often find themselves. Is all the worldly stuff off limits? You know, can I have material things and still love God? Can I, can I have fun experiences and still be a Christian? You know, if I, if I love God, do I have to hate everything else? Let's see if we can try to understand a little bit better what John is trying to say in this letter uh, that he writes to, to the church as he continues to teach us what it means to, to prove it. We've been in this series, Prove It Now, for a couple of weeks, and we've got a couple more weeks to go, but we're just walking through the, the letter of 1 John. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over to chapter 2 of 1 John. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17 today. And today we're going to talk about this, this desire that all of us have. And, and today's passage of Scripture, it begins with kind of a, a curious section. Uh, John writes this, he says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. And then John's going to go on in, in this passage to address fathers and young men. And he finds something to affirm in each of these three groups. 
And then he repeats that cycle all over again, which is a pattern that John seems to have when he is writing this letter. He, he goes in cycles. And, and these three groups, children and fathers and young men, I don't think he's talking to a gender-specific group of people. I think these are, this is a term likely to refer to spiritual stages uh, uh, that are represented by John's readers. Some are new believers, so they would be the children, you know, still rejoicing in their forgiveness. Some are seasoned believers. They're, they're mature in their knowledge of God. And then others, they're just kind of starting to hit their stride. They're, they're the young men. They're, they're hitting their stride as followers of Christ. They're full of zeal and full of strength. And wherever they might be at in their journey, John doesn't want them to get discouraged by his challenging words because he's going to have some very challenging words for them. He wants them to understand that, that he has their best interest at heart. Remember, he's writing to them as, as, as a mentor, as, as a pastor-type person. And I would say all three groups of people that, that John talks about, the children and fathers and young men, those spiritual stages, I would say all of them are represented here today. Some of us are, are new to the faith and full of gratitude and, and curiosity. I think probably the, the strongest group that's represented are, are those who are, who are who've been following Christ for a very long time, who are seasoned believers, but, but still, you know, hopefully eager to grow and, and, and learn more. And then there's the others who are just starting to enjoy a season of strength and, and impact. But wherever you're at on, on that spectrum, wherever you're at in that lineage, I hope that we're all eager to go deeper in our faith, to learn how that we can prove it even more and more to those around us. And like a wise parent, John takes these people, sits, sits them down, and sits us down. And he looks us in the eye and he tells us that he loves us and is proud of us. And he's got something very important to share with us. And this is what he has to share with us. He says this in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. That's a stark contrast from John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. It's a, it's a stern warning. It's one of the relatively few times that John uses the, the imperative mood as, as to give a command. Just to show you kind of the, the ratio, give you a perspective of it. Um, in the book of James, which is also just five chapters long, this first John's five chapters, book of James, James is five chapters. In the book of James, James uses this imperative mood, this command type speech or, or prohibition 35 times. John does it simply 15 times. And this is one of them. This is one of those times he says, do not love the world. That's, that's how serious he is about it. So we need to understand what he means by the world because if Jesus says that God so loved the world, it would make sense that his followers would love the world too. So we need to understand what he means by the world. Here John is using the Greek word cosmos, which in the New Testament generally has two different meanings. Sometimes it refers to the created world. It refers to the earth itself and all of its inhabitants, human beings. And the Bible is very clear about this, that the world in that sense is good. In fact, God pronounced it very good when he was done creating it. And as we said, it's clear from the Bible that God loves the world. And it's clear because he sent his son to save the world. So when he says here, do not love the world or anything in the world, he's not talking about the earth itself or people in the world. In fact, I think it would be the opposite of that. He would say, yeah, you should love those people. In fact, we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks, how that's how people will know that we love them or that we're Christians is by the way that we love them. So he's not talking about earth or, or the human race. Sometimes the word cosmos is used to describe the sinful world. That, that is the earthly system of values and beliefs and behaviors that are in opposition to God and his purposes. John uses uh, 
the word this way a couple other times in this letter. In chapter 4, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, he says this. He says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. And then in chapter 5, he writes, the whole world is under control of the evil one. When, when John uses the, the word or the phrase the world, in this sense, he's referring to a way of life that ignores God and ignores his rule. If you're still maybe having trouble connecting those dots, think stereotypical, and I say stereotypical, Las Vegas. Like, you know, just a hedonistic lifestyle, you know, anything goes, nothing's off limits, you know, right? That, that kind of uh, what we think of when we think of Las Vegas. That, that's what John is talking about here. And the point that John is wanting, us, is wanting to make is that you cannot love the world and God at the same time. If you love the world, he says, the love of the Father is not in you. In other words, you can't have a foot in both worlds. It's like you, you, you can't say you love God and the deep life that he offers and at the same time be actively embracing the sinful values of the world. We all know people who, who have tried to, to live like that. People that, that have tried to do that at the same time to, to say, I love God, you know, show up on church on Sunday and, and, and I'm going to sing his songs and I'm going to pray his prayers and I'm going to worship and all those kind of things. And then on, you know, Monday through Saturday, li- live like a, like a heathen. Like it just doesn't work, right? Eventually, you got to make a decision. It's kind of like standing on, on a dock and you put one foot in the canoe and the other foot on the dock and what happens? Eventually, you got to put both feet somewhere. You either got to get in the, dock, in the canoe or get on the dock, because if you don't, what's going to happen? You're going to end up in the water. John says that, that you, gotta, you can't love the world and everything in it. And if you do, then the love of the Father's not in you. So how do you know if you love the world? How do you know? Well, look at verse 16. He says, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and the boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. Now, if you're a a seasoned Christian, maybe you grew up with a different translation than than that, um, you probably recognize this verse from the King James, where King James translates these phrases as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And I like that translation. I think that's a, that's a good translation. But, but whichever translation you prefer, John is identifying three worldly desires that are characteristics of a worldly way of life. They, they were once explained to me as, as the desires to do, to have, and to be. The first is the, the desire which King James calls the, the lust of the flesh. And we should talk about that word for just a minute, lust, because it actually applies to all three of the desires. Uh, in the Greek language, lust is a, is a compound word, which, which takes the normal word for desire, and it puts a prefix on it that intensifies it. It, it literally uh, means just a, a, hyper, uh, a hyper desire. Um, it, it's, so lust is one of those things, it begins with a healthy desire, but then it, it's taken to an unhealthy extreme. And remember, there's nothing wrong with desire. Most of the desires that we have are God-given. The, the desire to eat, to drink, to work, to play, to build, to procreate, to achieve, to conquer. All of these desires are natural to human beings. What the world does them is it takes these natural desires and it perverts them. It, it corrupts them, it exaggerates them so that they become unhealthy and, and subhuman. I saw a YouTube ad this week from some restaurant, I don't remember what restaurant it was, and it was the, the ad went something like this, you know, so-and-so introduces uh, five new reasons to crave 
super melt sandwiches. And there was this close-up shot in the video, uh, almost like a still shot of a, of a grilled piece of bread with some phony-looking cheese just oozing out of the side of it. Now, I tell you, I like a good sandwich just as much as anybody else. But there's something probably a little wrong if, if a larger-than-life photograph can send people you know, out the doors and into a restaurant to pick one of these up. So, so the first of these hyper-desires is the desire to do, which, which John describes as the lust of the flesh. That, that word flesh, it refers to the sensual side of our nature. So, so we might label it, you know, that desire pleasure. And once again, there, there's nothing wrong with pleasure or with sensuality. In, in God's wisdom and love, God gave us taste buds and eardrums and nerve endings so that we could experience the world in, in a physical way, in a way that brings us pleasure. You know, like biting into a crisp apple or, or guzzling a Gatorade after a good workout or running your hand across a finally finished uh, piece of furniture or, or a hug from your grandma or a pat on the back from your friend or, or a kiss on the lips from someone that you're crazy about. All of those things feel good, and there's nothing wrong with them when they're experienced as God intended them to be experienced. But the world takes these desires and it twists them into something that, that they were never meant to be. You know, there's nothing wrong with food, right, until we eat too much of it. There's nothing wrong with a drink, liquor, or coffee until it alters our behavior or until you can't live without it. There's nothing wrong with a kiss on the lips as long as the person you're kissing is rightfully yours to kiss. When the pursuit of pleasure takes over our lives, when it drives us to do things that, that are hurtful to ourselves or to society, then the world has gotten us and it has eclipsed our love for the Father. And so the, John talks about this, this lust of the flesh or pursuit of pleasure. The second worldly desire that John identifies is the desire to have. The, the King James Version puts it as the lust of the eyes. Now, this, is, this desire is not directed towards sensation and experience, but toward material objects, things that the world tells us that, that we have to have. It, it's the desire for possessions. Now, let me ask, is there anything wrong with having nice things, with having material things, whether it's clothes or a nice house or toys or tools? No. If God should provide the resources for them, the, the Bible never condemns anybody for desiring or to have things or for having them. We meet plenty of people in Scripture that are wealthy, and, and Jesus had plenty of wealthy friends and acquaintances. But when you decide that you have to have a particular thing, when you're prepared to spend reckless amounts of money to, to get it, when your happiness or your identity depends on you having this possession, when you just want to have it because somebody else has it, or because the TV or social media or the culture tells us that you have to have it, the desire has given way to lust, and having it has become more important than having God. The, the third worldly desire is the desire to be, which King James describes as the pride of life. This is the pursuit of success and achievement and recognition. So we'll just call this one pride. Now, there's, again, nothing wrong with taking pride in a job well done. Or, or feeling good when you achieve a milestone, or, or reveling in, in the affirmation of others when it's rightly deserved and received. God placed within us a desire to pursue excellence and, and, and impact and, and accomplishment. Um, this, this past weekend, yesterday actually, uh, I was out at the fairgrounds for a cross-country meet, and uh, I was just looking around at, you know, at our team, Central Harden, and I got to thinking about, you know, we have about seven or eight kids that 
from the church that are connected to the church that, that run on the cross-country team. And I was so proud of all of them yesterday as I watched them run, and then I got to check in their times. Like, they all did a really great job yesterday. Uh, several of them set new personal records for themselves, and, and they, they just did a great job. And, you know, they had great attitudes, and they, they ran hard, and, and they, they didn't complain, and they didn't whine about stuff. And, and there were some other teams there that were doing all of those kind of things, and they just ran hard. And I was really proud of all of them, and they should be proud of themselves. And there's nothing wrong with them being proud of their accomplishments and, and proud of what they achieved yesterday. But when our pursuit of success compels us to bend the rules, when, when we need to beat everybody else to feel good about ourselves, when we find our identity and worth in our accomplishments, when we have to build ourselves up by tearing other people down, when we look down on others who have attained less than we have, when the people's approval has become more important to us than God's approval, then there's something wrong. Then our souls are in jeopardy. And chances are that one of these three poses a particular problem for you. Pleasure, possessions, or pride. Maybe all three, I don't know. But when, when any of these things begin to demand time or money or attention that rightfully belongs to God, when, when they tempt you to compromise your convictions or to neglect people or pursuits that are important to you, then you're falling in love with the world. And it's only a matter of time before you end up throwing yourself toward one of these instead of toward God. I want to ask you if you had to identify your, which one of these you struggle with the most, which, which one would it be? And you don't have to answer that out loud, okay? But just think about that. What, which one of these three do you struggle with the most? Or, or, or is there one right now that you're struggling with? You know, maybe, maybe it's all three. Maybe, you, you know, I want to have fun on the weekends and I want to be able to buy nice things and I want to be on the fast track at work. But is any of that bad? What, what's wrong with having fun and owning things and striving for success? Again, nothing as long as they lead us closer to God and the life that he has in mind for us. Because these three desires, this to do, to have, and to be, they were never meant to, to satisfy us in and of themselves. They were never meant to, to completely satisfy us. They were always intended to point us toward God, to move us closer to God. These three desires, which God has given us, the desire to have and to do and to be, they were always meant to point us to God. The problem with Pleasure and possessions and pride isn't so much that they're wrong. It's just that they're not enough. They're not enough. They, they don't last for one thing. You know, pleasure is fleeting. Possessions lose value. Earthly accomplishments are soon forgotten or surpassed. They, they just don't last. For another thing, they're too shallow. They can't satisfy the, the deepest desires of our hearts. Because you see, it's not pleasure that we're seeking. We're, we're looking for joy. We don't need more stuff. We need contentment. It's not, a, it's not achievement we're after, it's significance. And these things can only be found ultimately and eternally in a relationship with God, with, which is why John says the one who does the will of God lives forever. According to C.S. Lewis, these three desires, to do, to have, and to be, they are merely the rumblings of a much deeper desire. It's, it's a desire so deep and so profound that even C.S. Lewis himself couldn't find a word for it. He, he talks about it in his writings as this inconsolable longing for, for something more. Sometimes he describes it as, as a beauty and other times as a joy, but by his own admission, those, those words don't quite adequately describe it. The, the closest word that, that Lewis could find was a German word called sensuck. And I don't know if I'm saying that right, okay? I've Googled it and how to pronounce it, but I don't speak German. So, you know. But even there, he says it's hard to define 
He says, but we know it when we feel it. This German word, it combines the idea of, of wanting something and also missing something. It describes a deep existential yearning for, for something that we can't name but we know to be true. In, in his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis describes it as the scent of a flower that we haven't found yet. Or the echo of a tune that we've not heard. The news from a country that we've not visited yet. It is the longing for every good and perfect thing all at once. It's the longing for God and His kingdom. And until all of those deepest desires are satisfied, nothing else will ever be enough. It's kind of like the great theologian Mick Jagger says, we can try and we can try and we can try, but we just can't get no satisfaction. Because no earthly pleasure or possession or achievement can satisfy the deep longing of our souls. The human heart was made for God. Augustine said that, and he said, Our hearts are restless till we find rest in Him. But once that desire is satisfied, once we've turned to God and we've aligned our our will with His purpose for our lives, we can experience earthly things as they were meant to be experienced in relationship with Him. The world and all of its desires are passing away, John says. But he says, but the one who does the will of God lives. And He lives forever. And if you think this world has great things to enjoy, can you imagine what's waiting for us on the other side of heaven? On the other side of eternity? What's waiting for us in the life to come? In the country that we haven't visited yet but we know to be true? And so John's message for us this week, his his big idea is this, is that you know you're proving it when you want life with God more than anything else that this world has to offer. The psalmist writes in Psalm 84.10, he says, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand days elsewhere. And as I was thinking about this message and I was just doing some reflecting on my own life, I'll openly admit that there are times when those three desires to do, to, to be, and to have have been unhealthy for my relationship with the Lord. But the longer that I walk with Christ, the more I trust that those desires are filled more in Christ than anywhere else. And the truth is that in the 30 years or so that I've been a Christian, I've enjoyed more doing and more having and more being than any human could ever ask for. I wouldn't trade one day of my life uh, with God for a thousand days in this world without Him. Like the old gospel song says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this world affords me. And I hope that's true for you as well. I don't know if I can always say that every day, uh, honestly, because there are days where I want other stuff, where I want to do other things, and I want to be something else. But the more and more that I walk with Christ, the more I find that to be true. That what Jesus seems to offer us, what Jesus not seems to offer, what Jesus offers us is far greater than anything this world could ever offer us. So let me ask you, would you rather have Jesus and the life that he offers than any earthly pleasure, possession, accomplishment? If so, I'd like to invite you to take some steps toward that life in the days to come. Because John says, whoever loves the Father lives forever. But you can't love the world and love the Father too. They just don't go together. You can't love one and love the other, so we have to make a choice. What are we going to choose? Are we going to choose the world and all of its glitter and glamour? 
or we're going to choose Jesus and the eternal relationship that he offers us with the, with the creator of the entire universe. Choice is yours. Let me pray for us.